Well, if you'd like to, and I strongly encourage you might like to, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. There are not eight chapters in Colossians, there are only four. So we're turning to the second one, Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to spend some time this week and next week working through some passages there that I have spent uh, a lot of time sort of mulling over and thinking about and trying to get my head around, and there's a lot of it's a difficult passage. There are a lot of difficult passages in Scripture. This is just one of them, so this is one where I've spent some time. So I encourage you to spend some time with me in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read from verse 20 through to 3 verse 4. This week we're, going to, we're just going to look together at 2.20 through to 3 verse 2, and then next week we'll go through verses 3 and 4 in more detail. So we'll read there this morning. So join with me, and we read there, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees, such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, as we open your word this morning, and as we seek to uncover and understand the truth that you have placed there for us, that we can understand even your own mind, we pray indeed, Lord, that we would be willing to put aside what we think we know so that we can agree in our minds with what you say is true. We pray you'll help us, Lord, to put aside the things we might want in this life so that we can see what is really important and we can desire that. Father, would you work in us this, for this end? We know, Lord God, that this doesn't come easy. We know that we need your help, which is why this morning we ask that you would give us grace and wisdom. And Lord, and I ask for your grace on me this morning that I would communicate your word faithfully, clearly, in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Lord, may this be all our hearts this morning as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There is, uh, if you've ever been, to, you've probably never been to North Africa. I've never been to North Africa, but apparently in North Africa they eat monkeys. The trick, however, is catching them. <laughs> of course, monkeys uh, live high in the trees and uh, for the most part, and they tend to climb a little quicker than you and I do, and so they tend to be difficult to catch. They run free, they enjoy their freedom, they use it to the greatest advantage, and they tease those who would who would eat them by rushing around and getting away from them. But the, the people there came up with this ingenious way of catching them. 
what they would do is they would get a gourd, which is a plant, which grows a bulb like this, which you can hollow out. And they would hollow out that gourd, and they'd have a hole in the top, which is large enough for the monkey to put his hand in, and then they would fill it with nuts. So in the night, the monkey will smell the, the food and will come and find it, will de- determine that there is food in the bottom of this gourd, put their hand in, grab some nuts, but then they wouldn't be able to remove their hand because the hole is just big enough to put an empty hand through but not a full hand. And so the problem, with, of course, with monkeys is they're not terribly smart. So instead of letting go of the nuts, they hold on. And, of course, the good is tied to a tree. It's not going anywhere. And therefore the monkey is not going anywhere. And so in the morning... When they come along, they come along, they knock the monkey on the head and they take it and they turn it into a meal. And that's how you catch a monkey. Freedom for the monkey consists in leaving behind the nuts. Right? Consists in leaving behind that potential prize, that thing that he has there that he thinks will hold, will help him, will be beneficial to him. Of course, food is helpful, right? But he doesn't have the sense to realize that he is free except for that one little thing that he keeps holding on to. And so rather than leaving behind and keeping his freedom, his stupidity, his holding on to those nuts, not only will ensnare him in the short term, but it will ultimately destroy him. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I can identify with that monkey. You often look back on things in your life and you wonder... You know, what if I'd just not done that? My life would have been different. But also, even as Christians, we live in a world which, which teaches us things. And sometimes we are so engrossed in the things that the world teaches and the expectations that the world has of us that we are unable to escape and flee for our lives. We have a degree of freedom, but we're snared by them, by the things that the world gives us. You know, we don't grow, for instance, very much often in our understanding of God, in our understanding of sin, and in our understanding of the world. God has a very specific way he sees things being. And as Christians, we are to grow in that understanding. And yet, the world teaches us its view of the world, which is very different, and we get stuck and snared by that. And it keeps us captive. It keeps us captive to godless religion, godless ways of living. And we end up thinking that if we do this and this, we will end up being good Christians. And in fact, the opposite is true. These ideas, these things that we think are good and and acceptable because the world thinks they're good and acceptable are really things that keep us imprisoned. And so if we are people, if we're Christians who think and act as Christians and it's no different to the way the world thinks and acts and even religious people in the world think and act, then nothing has changed. We have really just taken on the world's understanding of religion. And what Paul is really dealing with here in this passage before us, is not so much worldliness in the way we would normally think about it. He's not worried about whether you love money too much or whether you pursue your own things too much. What he's dealing with here is a group of people who have been seduced by worldly religion. 
In other words, a group has come into Colossae and they have said, this is what it means to be religious. And therefore, you Colossians, it doesn't matter if you're Christians or if you follow Athenia or whoever it is, this is the way you are to live. This is what religion looks like. And so for us, Paul, and for Paul, for the Colossians, he's coming along here and he's saying, if you've died with Christ. He's really pointing out here in this passage four realities of Christian living that pertain to us in a daily, everyday life. These are four realities of the Christian living that he wants us to recognize and live according to. And these differentiate us, well, when we understand them, they will differentiate us from godless religion. And by godless religion, you could include any other world religion in here. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. The first reality he gives us here is the reality of having died to the world. And here Paul begins asking a question. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Now this really is continuing Paul's initial concern in Colossians 2 verse 6. He starts there and he says, As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. And you see what's happened here is that for the Colossians, they are now walking according to rules and regulations set for them by someone outside rather than walking according to the grace of Christ. And that's an important point that we'll come back to over and over throughout this. He goes on in chapter 2 verse 8 and he says, Watch out so that you're not taken Captive, And there's our kind of our idea is that the Colossians have indeed been taken captive according to the elementary principles, if you want to put it that way, which is how it's put here in the, the uh, New American Standard Version, the elementary principles of the world. Watch out, you don't be caught with them. And he's really saying you have been taken captive by these principles. And he points out the reason this is a problem, because in Christ, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Christ, verse 10, you are, what does it say? Complete. complete. If you're complete, you don't need anything else. In Christ, you are complete. And in him, verse 11, you were circumcised in the stripping off of the body of the flesh. And this really is a re- reference to the idea that the flesh the body of the flesh, the corrupt part of us, we have died to that. If we're Christians, the truth is we have died to the flesh. But he doesn't stop there. 2 verse 12, you were having been buried, you died, right? What do you do with somebody who dies? You bury them. So you were buried, but then you were raised again. And then verse 13, while you were dead, you were made alive. And so how did he do that? He went in verse 14 and 15. He wiped away the decrees against us and he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And we'll talk about why that's important in a little bit later. But then because Christ or God has done all of this in Christ and because you died with Christ, the power that the world had over you has been loosened. Paul is saying that the world has no power over you But the life they are living is very different from the life that God wants them to live. Even though they've been set free from the rules and the regulations and the laws and all these kind of requirements they have to meet, 
Paul looks at them and he says, Colossians, you are not living the way you ought to live. And he's warning, even us, verse 8, watch out that any one of you not be taken captive according to the elementary principles of the world. So you and I, if we've died to the world, Paul is asking, then why should, why do we live like we haven't? Why do we live like we're still alive? Let me ask a question. What does Christ, what does Paul mean when he says, you died with Christ through the elementary principles of the world? We need to dig into this idea a bit more. Well, what is the world? First of all, and this is very important, by the world he doesn't mean the created order, everything that God made. Right? He's not saying everything in this world is evil, therefore you should consider yourself dead to it. In fact, Paul, I'm sure, would argue against that. He doesn't mean that when he's talking about the world. Instead, what he means is that the world order, which is ruled over, ruled by the devil, and is administered by these rulers and authorities and these principles, these elements that exist in it. That's what he has in mind. He has really in mind the idea that the, the world exercises control over us by telling us what is acceptable and what is not. There are laws and rules that the world uses, and it uses these laws and rules in conjunction with your flesh, because your flesh loves rules, not because it likes to keep them, but because it likes to break them. And so it uses these in conjunction with our flesh. And so when we break these rules, the world order takes advantage of us and it manipulates us and it orders our lives. See, the problem is that the world order, this, this system that we live in, is administered by corrupted people. And so the system itself is corrupted. It's not what God intended it to be. It is a product of sinful people and is manipulated by the evil one to oppose God and his work. Now, the important ramification of this is that the world gives us a faulty morality. That's what's important about this. It gives us a faulty morality. It gives us an idea of religion, if you want to put it that way, that presents God as someone who is to be appeased or set, uh, you know, who we can sort of put and make him quiet on our behalf rather than getting angry with us. We can appease him by doing certain things. That's a godless, a worldly view of religion. And here, the Colossians have been manipulated by their world system, which is a little different to ours, to live according to its standards and decrees. And so today, even though we live 2,000 years later, there is still this corrupted world order. There is still this corrupted idea of morality in which we find ourselves, and it's very subtle. Let me give you some examples. In the workplace, for instance, the world gives us an understanding of morality, standards, if you like, about success and retirement and travel and pleasure. These are all standards to which you ought to reach. In the home, standards can be different. They're often comfort or pleasure or peace, or sometimes it's a, a sort of form of peace that's dictated by one dominant individual. In society, there are standards which are including things like choice, you know, the individual in society gets to choose their own destiny, independence, 
authenticity and self-expression. These are more important and more highly valued in the secular society in which we live in than they are in the Word of God. These are false standards which the world gives us that we're often ignorant of, we often overlook, we often assume are okay, but influence the way we respond and interact with God, the way we think of religion. Even among our peers, particularly if you're in high school or you know not far beyond that, the standards are acceptability, popularity, and respect. If someone does something to you that seems to be deriding your own respect and the way they look at you, you have to do something about it. And so all of these things set standards which then guide our behavior, and the church is not immune from this. In churches, often the standards are morality, respectability, influence, self-acceptance, and self-affirmation. There are so many churches, even in our own town this morning, that try to make the people who come along accept themselves for who they are, rather than considering who you are on the basis of what God says. These are false standards that become moral standards, which then determine how we think about religion and determine how we think about Christianity. Now, just because I say these are in the church, this doesn't mean that these things are unimportant in the church. Right? The key thing here with morality in the church is not that morality is irrelevant, but it's not one imposed by the people. It's one that comes from Christ living in us. Right? That's what drives our morality. It's not an expectation of respectability that the church expects everybody to be lawyers or doctors or whoever. It's the respectability that accompanies a life lived in biblical wisdom. You see, we earn respect as we walk in Christ's likeness, as we love Christ, as we honor him. The influence that the church values is not the influence that's found in the world. It's the influence of a godly life and a humble heart. That is an influence. That encourages us to godliness. The acceptance that we're concerned about in church is not a self-acceptance despite sin. It's an acceptance of God's forgiveness, which is far more difficult than self-acceptance. And it's not an affirmation of self that we're concerned about. It's really the affirmation of Christ we're concerned about. So these standards kind of present themselves as seeming to be right. They're very subtle. And they seem to be good, and we adopt them without analyzing them and assessing them against what the Word of God says. And Paul is saying here that you have died to the world, and you died to these externally imposed standards. What does he mean by you have died? Well, go back again to verse 11. He says there, you've stripped off this body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. We were buried with him in baptism. We were raised with him through faith in Christ. There is now, because that is gone and new life has come, there is a new principle by which we are to live as Christians. See, our new life is not bound up in the world's ideas of success or the world's ideas of peace or personality or acceptance, or authority, or self-expression. 
See, if you're a Christian, the way the world works no longer has a free, has a hold on you. You are free from it. Dying with Christ means dying to the flesh, dying to the appeals to the flesh, dying to the influences that are upon the flesh, like the standards in the workplace, the expectations from family, the norms of society, the conformity to peers, and the ideals given to us by church members. We are to die to all, we've died to all of these things. These are all worldly ideas of religion. These are worldly influences on what we understand Christianity to be. And if we're a Christian, you've died to all these things. You've died to everything the world and its system holds to be important. Or did you? See, it may be that these things have a hold on you. That these ideas and philosophies and concepts and expectations have a hold on you. I spoke to a man many years ago. This was before an election. He was a Christian. He was, this was in a church. And I asked him who he was voting for in the upcoming general election. And the party he gave me the answer of was one that I thought was very openly opposed to the Christian worldview. That man had not stopped to think, what does God say in his word about the world we live in? About how it should be run? See, our views, our political views, are not to be divorced from what the Word of God says. Our understanding of religion is to permeate every part of our lives because we died to the old world. We died to the elementary principles of this world. And we're now alive to Christ. And like Paul is asking here, if you died to that life, why do you still adopt all its standards? Why do you still walk in its ways? And this is why he brings up the second reality. So we've seen the reality of having died to the world. He now wants us to see the difficulty of living in the world. Why, as if you're living in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why do you submit to these decrees? And the word decree here, in the the, uh, Roman times, they would use this word dogma, the verb form of that, to refer to the decrees of the Roman Senate. So the senators, the the group that would stand around, they would set the laws and they would hand down a decree. And they would decree that this was to be the case. And so the Colossians here are subjecting themselves to these external decrees. That's exactly the problem that they're in. So even though they died to the world, the way, the decrees that they are choosing to live by are no different. Their form of religion is a worldly form of religion. And we can ask ourselves the question, if, if the world was to know that going to church doesn't make somebody a Christian, and they accused you of being a Christian, putting aside church, and you go to church, would there be enough evidence to convict you of that truth? Do you think differently enough? Do you act differently enough? Are the standards you live by different enough from the world that they would say that person is not living according to the way we set themselves, we set this world to live? The difficulty we have as Christians is that it is so hard to escape the influence of the world. And it may be that even as I've been talking through these things, you're thinking, man, Daryl is making such a fine point here. It seems to be kind of nitpicky. But Paul is really pointing out a key truth that he needs for us 
to understand. And that is that there is a different way of living if we had died with the Christ of the world than if we have been raised with Christ of the world. We are different. We are going to live different lives. But Paul says these people are still managed and worked by decrees. And he gives us some in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So very general decrees, right? The point here is not the individual decrees as such, but what they're representing is that they're giving him, these are the commands that the world gives us, such as don't discriminate against homosexuals. Don't make any judgment about such things. Don't let women think of themselves as complementary to men. They're in every way equal, no difference whatsoever. And to think otherwise is anathema. Or don't impose your beliefs on others. This is very common. It seems that the world has said don't impose your beliefs on others, but we're happy to impose our beliefs on you. Just don't you do it back. You see, these are the commands that the world gives us. These are very obvious secular mandates but some of the world's commands make their way into the lives of Christians and they're very subtle. In fact, if you go back, some of you are old enough to remember this, if you go back to the middle of the 20th century or even probably this, the early second half of the 20th century, you would have heard things like this in the church. Don't go to the theatre. Don't dance. Ken's laughing. He knows this. Don't play cards. Well, these are worldly ideas that seep their way into the church. They're doing the same today. Don't let anyone tell you what to believe. That's something the world tells us. And God says, no, that's not the case. Don't let anyone be your spiritual guide. Don't get anybody to you know, make decisions about your own spiritual life. Don't have anybody have involvement in that. Don't let anyone tell you what you should or should not do. These are worldly ideas that seep into the church. They're more subtle. These are the sorts of decrees that the world imposes. And they're seductive. Because when these ideas come in, they come with promises. For instance, don't go to the theatre, don't dance, don't play cards, because you want to be a righteous person. Right? That's the idea. By living this way, or not doing those things, you're going to be a righteous person. You'll have the moral high ground. Or these other ones, don't let anyone tell you what you believe. Don't let anyone be your spiritual guide. Don't let anyone tell you what you should or should not do. These are things that say you will then be in charge of your own destiny. You will get to make your own decisions about what is right and what is wrong. Your actions will be the natural expression of who you are. You see how the world does this? It's very subtle. (laughs) To live according to Christ... According to the way we received Christ, remember that's his point in 2 verse 6, we are, if we're going to live according to the death we died in the body of the flesh and the influence that the world has upon it, then we need to stop living as if we were still part of the world and its system. And so that brings us to our third point. We've seen the reality of having died to the world and the difficulty of living in the world, but we also need to see the futility of living like the world. And this is really the crux of Paul's argument. And this is really muddy because your translation really doesn't help in this particular case. Paul is trying to give us, a, explain to us here, what is wrong with these rules? Someone, in fact, you might even be sitting there this morning asking, well, don't rules help us to live upright lives? Aren't they useful tools? Well, yeah, they do in a sense. But the problem is that the lives that these rules help us to live are the lives that the world's system wants us to live by. These are the rules of an acceptable religion. These are the rules of a non-threatening religion. These are not the rules Christ 
calls us to live by. And verse 22 really tells us the problem with this approach. And let me give you a different translation to what's in your Bible. And I'm doing this, this is a difficult passage to translate. This verse here is, is tricky. But let me give you what I'm going to, this is how I'm translating this from the Greek. It's, I've said, and this is very ugly translation, it's not very smooth. The problem is that all of these things are in reference to corruption by usage. And let me unpack that and explain that to you. First of all, the word that you've probably got in your Bible, perish, right? You see the word perish there? That word, if you look through the way that word is translated in the New Testament, of the eight times we find it, it almost always has the meaning of corruption or deterioration. Almost always. There is one instance where it may not, though even there it's questionable. Second, the word to perish is a noun. It's not a verb. Now, a verb you can translate to perish. School teachers among you will know that's an infinitive. That's a verb form. This is a noun. You can't translate a noun that way. Third, the preposition there, uh, ice, which is the Greek preposition, is translated sometimes to refer to a goal. And that's why in the New American Standard it says destined to perish. Right? You can see how it's kind of stacking these things up. But the preposition is better understood as the ESV understands it, in reference to something. So a better translation is to say here, which is all in reference to corruption by usage. The idea is all of these things, all of these commands assume that you will be corrupted by doing things in the world. That's his point. You will be corrupted by the world, and so don't interact with the world because that will keep you pure. That is the essence of a godless religion. Does that make sense? The essence of a godless religion is where you treat the externals and take no notice of the internals because you think that the world out there is corrupt but inside you're pure and you don't want to become corrupted. And there are lots of different variations of this. The fundamental issue is that worldly religion thinks that man is basically good. The man is basically good and that the world is bad. Worldly religion thinks that God needs to be appeased and therefore if we live by rules we will appease God and we will be okay. Because the idea is that what's out there will corrupt us and we don't need that because we want to appease God for the bad things we've done. You see how it works? It's a godless religion. And this is how every other world religion works. You earn your way to Allah. You hope that he shows you grace, but you live in hopes that he will recognize the way you've lived. Mormonism, the way you live then determines the, the, where you will end up and the kind of afterlife you will have. Jehovah's Witnesses, the same thing. All the different religions of the world are exactly the same. And what Paul is saying here is this is not, this is part of the world system. This is an acceptable form of religion to the world, but it is abhorrent to God. Which is why it's so difficult to live in the world. Because the world gives us all these standards. And I see the problem here is that false religion or worldly religion puts the problem in the wrong place. Paul has a problem with these commands because they assume that the corruption is out there and not in here. And by using the stuff out there, it will corrupt us in here. And so he's saying, if you live that way, you're buying into that whole worldview. If you've died with Christ, you've died to that worldview. 
It's gone. Need to let it go. In other words, worldly religion looks at man as basically good and the world is basically bad and by using the world's stuff, we will be corrupted. Even just two days ago, I took Natasha, my oldest daughter, out on a date. We do that not often enough. And she, she's a deep thinker. And so she asks good, hard questions. So the question, one of the two questions she asked me the other day was where do movies, novels and entertainment fit into the Christian life? It's a question many of us don't want to ask. <laughs> Truly, right? The problem, the problem is that if we, we, we think, we know, we recognize that movies and novels and entertainment, all these things are not always good. Right? They are built in to, they have corrupting influence in them because they are built by corrupted people. And so we see the corruption coming through them. But the problem is that these are also part of our culture. They are part of what is going on in the world around us. In fact, and what I said to her was that when God said to rule over the world and make culture, as he said in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, somewhere around there anyway, God expects us to create artifacts of culture. And sometimes those are movies, sometimes they are dances, sometimes they're all sorts of different things. These are all artifacts of culture. This is part of what God calls us to do. But the problem is that they also build with them and have in them some elements of these false ideas. But the problem is not so much those artifacts of culture. The problem is that those artifacts of culture appeal to our flesh. Right? It's not that they're going to corrupt us, but they appeal to the corruption that's already in us. That's why we get drawn into them. See, the problem is not the movie as much as my own corruption. See, men, for instance, and women increasingly so, are not drawn as victims toward pornography by these external things working on them. The problem is that on the inside, they have these corrupt desires and the the media, these artifacts, provide them with a willing, though fake, partner. An outlet for those desires to run rampant. But the problem is that the thing is that the world is not responsible for the corruption within us. It only provides us with the circumstances and the opportunities for our corruption to show itself. Does that make sense? The world does not corrupt us itself. What it does is that it provides opportunities and circumstances for our corruption to show itself, which is one reason why rules can be helpful in the sense of saying, you know what, I'm not going to have a television in the home because that then is something my flesh will grip onto. See, at that point, you're no longer saying no, 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 assuming the problem is out there. You're now seeing the problem is inside. But these commands that deal with the outside, Paul acknowledges that they sound good. He says there, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, verse 23. Well, the problem is that the appearance of wisdom relates to, you know, godless, worldly religion. And he lists three things. First of all, self-made religion. And here really the idea is the idea of following your own ideas, your own will and your own beliefs. In other words, Self-made religion is a religion that follows what seems best in your own eyes. These are the people, the people who follow self-made religion are the ones who don't want to submit to authority. They're the ones who don't want to do what pastors and elders and so on call them to do because they don't want to submit. They have their own religion and they're happy in it, thank you very much. Don't let me come out of that. It's a self-made religion. 
These commands also have value in self-abasement. And here the Greek word is the same word we see other, in other places translated as humility. Here we're, put, we're commanded to put on a heart of humility. So what can be wrong with this? Here Paul is using it in a negative sense because it's not a response to the work of God that he understands and recognizes in his heart. This is an externally motivated humility. This is a humility so that people think differently about him or act or treat him differently and different to the way he is on the inside. It's, a, it's all a show. So it, these, this, these rules make it look like your humility, but there's no submission to God. There's no responding to what God has done in Christ through obedience and submission to God and the, the authority he has instituted. And these commands are also good and useful if we're interested in severe treatment of the body. And this one is more subtle. See, this goes back to a false understanding of man. Because many religions, they see matter as evil and spirit as good. Have you heard this before? This is uh, this goes back to Plato. And they regard, therefore, the body as inherently evil. And therefore, and in fact, they will see the, the soul. So we would say that, you know, the Bible teaches very clearly that man is both a material and an immaterial part. But the people he's talking about here with the severe treatment of the body, they say, no, man is a body, soul, and spirit. And what that does is they end up with a body which is corrupt, a soul which is corrupt, and a spirit which is good. You see the problem? So you end up with the problem with the body and their soul, and you've got to preserve the pure spirit. See the problem? And so what you do is you treat the body harshly, you suppress the desires of the body and the flesh so that the spirit is not corrupted by it. You weaken the body so that it doesn't act wickedly in the thought that the spirit will be pure. And that is a false idea. Man is a body, soul, one thing. We are a united body and soul. It's called a psychosomatic unity. We are, we are a body with a soul or a soul with a body. We are, we cannot break those. In fact, even death was never intended by God. Right? So these things, this is, these are, so this is why severe treatment of the body is great, you know, works great with these rules. Because it's treating the problem as out there, or the body, rather, you know, and I want to preserve the, the pure thing inside, the good thing that's in me. All of these, like I've mentioned, are false ideas of religion, and what Paul says here at the end of verse 23 is that they have no value against the gratification of the flesh. Hopefully now you can see why. See, commands against interaction with the world says the problem is outside when it's really inside. Commands and rules look good to others, but they don't change us. Commands and rules make sense if you're worshipping your God your way. And commands and rules are reasonable if you want to look humble or if you want to hold that man is made of three parts and you've got this pure part in you. But commands and rules don't deal with lust. Commands and rules don't bring us closer to God. Commands and rules are not what interests God. Commands and rules do not humble us. Commands and rules don't change or remove the corruption we already have within. In fact, it appeals to it. We need, therefore, our fourth point, the simplicity of living in Christ. And we've seen, like I mentioned before, the reality of having died to the world, the difficulty of living in the world, the futility of living like the world, and therefore Paul calls us to recognize the simplicity of living in Christ. You notice where we started in 2.20? If you have, what? Died with Christ to the elemental principles of the world, 
In verse 3 verse 1 he's saying, if then you've been raised. You see the, see how we've come full circle here? In these statements, Paul is just calling us to live lives in accordance with who we are in Christ. See, sometimes we have this temptation to think that when we become Christians, we swap our sin for Christ's righteousness and we exchange them. So that all of Christ's righteousness is ours and all of our sin is Christ's and therefore we don't have to worry about it anymore. And, and that's not entirely wrong, it's just insufficient. This is like a, a uh, truncated form of Christianity. And Paul says, you know, and argues in Romans 6 against this whole idea. Salvation is not simply an exchange. Notice in chapter 2, verse 11, he says there, in whom you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Made without hands. Notice that. In other words, someone without hands did this to us. In fact, the the word circumcised there is passive. We were circumcised without our involvement. God did this. God did this. He is the unspoken actor throughout this whole passage. He is the one who's done this work. He's behind the scenes in this whole text, acting and working to save us. And he did these two things to us. He put us to death with Christ, and he raised us with Christ. He buried you with him in baptism, and he raised you through faith with him in 2 verse 12. Then in 2 verse 13, while you were dead, he made you alive. And 2 verse 13 goes on and explains how he did this. It says there, by forgiving us all our trespasses, by wiping out, or having wiped out all the handwritten decrees which were hostile to us. Why is this important? Why is it important that Paul would point out that the way from death to life is to wipe out law, to wipe out rules? Why is that important? Well, Romans chapter 7 tells us why. In Romans 7 verse 5, Paul says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, get this, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Did you hear what he said? That the flesh is aroused by rules and laws. In other words, it's not that it makes us better people, but it corrupts us, and, and even the law itself, it appeals to the flesh because the flesh wants to break those laws. Not all of them, of course. It's much happier to to have, you know, the world's laws to keep than it is to have God's laws to keep. But when the, the th- problem is that when the law comes, the flesh responds in rebellion. And it incurs, therefore, punishment for sin. And so God's wrath accumulates against us. But now, in Christ, God has freed us, not just from the Old Testament law, though he has done that, but from all the law. He says in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of sin and death... No, that's not it. I've got to get that wrong. Never mind. You know the passage, right? For the, we've been set free by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, it says there, in, uh, we were released from the law. This is back in Romans 7. So that having died to that which held us captive, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the written code is a mark that is something that appeals to the flesh, that really the flesh responds to sinfully. But by keeping some of those, we think we can appease God. The point is here that God in Christ has forgiven us. 
And in doing so, he has freed us from every law. We don't have to worry about law, ever, because Christ has fulfilled the law for us. That is a great truth. See, our compliance or our non-compliance with rules and laws is irrelevant. Now, that doesn't mean, let me just pause here for just a moment, because some of you might be saying, well, doesn't that mean we can just do whatever we want? The point here is not so much that we get to do what we want. In fact, Romans chapter, Romans, Galatians 5 tells us you can't do what you want. You're either a slave of sin, the sinful nature, or you're a slave of Christ. Right? You can't do what you want. We don't get that choice. The point here is not that we, not to throw off law and have no principle and do what we want. The point here is that the principle has changed. The principle is no longer the law or rules, but is now Christ in you. That's the point. If you are raised with Christ, the Spirit of Christ has come to live in you, and you are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. In Romans 8, he carries on and says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. See, the indwelling Holy Spirit comes and he brings new desires and he comes to lead us into the truth, right? And so rather than being motivated by external laws, we're to be motivated by the desires of the Spirit and the thought processes, the mindset of the Holy Spirit within us. So rather than, like I said, let me repeat that, we are to be motivated by the desires and the mindset of the Holy Spirit within which is informed by the word of God rather than by rules and laws set up by ourselves or other people or society or family or whoever. The difficulty with this, of course, is that we still have the sinful nature. And so Paul is really answering here in 3 verses 1 and 2, how do we live with this corruption still in us? How do we deal with this? If the, if the flesh is keen to follow laws and, and to, to go with that, but then to break them and to appease God using them, if all of that appeals so much to the flesh, then how are we to live with Christ and the Spirit? And so he says there in 3 verses 1 and 2, if you've been raised with Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, then seek continually the things that are above, where Christ is at the right hand of God. Well, let's take that phrase just for a moment, the right hand of God, and let's just think about that for a moment. This refers back to Psalm 110, verse 1 and 5, which you'll know is a messianic psalm. And this points forward to Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I uh, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a famous verse. It's repeated about eight times in the New Testament. The point of the right hand of God here is that this is a place where righteous judgment awaits. Right? Righteous judgment awaits. And that brings for some people salvation, and it brings to other people condemnation. But that's all at the right hand of God. And so not only is there the righteous judgment, but there's also the ability to make that judgment happen. There's the ability to inevitably bring it to bear. God will one day judge the world the living and the dead, in righteous judgment, and some will be saved, and some will be condemned, and it will be right, and it will be good, and we will celebrate it. That's the right hand of God, and this is where Christ is. So really what he's saying is that Christ will bring this judgment. Christ will bring this salvation. Christ will vindicate God's purposes. Christ will demonstrate God's character. Christ will uphold God's honor, 
in the face of those who hate him and who oppose him. And so when he says here that Christ is at the right hand of God, this is the hope and promise that Christ, well, God through Christ will rule, that his character, his personality, his glory is going to come and it is going to make everything right. Now, when Paul then calls us to seek the things that are above, he's really calling us, really this idea, take this idea of God's character, this is what we are to seek. We are to seek God's honor through Christ. We are to seek God's righteous judgment in the world. We are to look to see God's character exhibited. In other words, we are to be desiring, because the idea of seeking here is more than just a a tedious wait. The idea is desire. This is Paul's central point. Rather than following rules, we are to follow the desires of the Spirit which want the glory of God, which want to see God's character shown to the world, shown in the world, shown in our lives, shown in the way we conduct ourselves and our responsibilities and in the way we respond to the circumstances that God brings into our lives. See, Paul is calling us to seek for or desire that in ourselves and those we have responsibility for and the opportunities that we have and the roles that we occupy All of these things, we are to desire God's glory in them. And so Paul here, whereas these commands really are dealing with the external, thinking the corruption comes from without, Paul is saying, no, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you, and he motivates you to do what is right. And he wants you to live according to those motivations. The second thing he calls us to do here, well, and I guess that, that makes us ask a question, right? He wants us to really question what we want in life. What do you want in life? Do you want God's character to be exhibited? Or do you just want people to think that you want God's character to be exhibited? See, there's a big difference. If you really want to glorify God, that's going to motivate you differently to if you want people to think You want to glorify God. Do you want God's character to be exhibited? Do you want God's character to be exhibited in your life? Or do you just want to have fun? Which is it? See, Paul is calling us and asking us, what do you really want? Do you want God's character to be exhibited? Or do you want some empty external religion? And he's saying there, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've got the Spirit of Christ in you, what you really want is going to be the glory of God. What you really want is at the right hand of God. Seek that. Desire that. Pursue that. Let that motivate and guide you. That's what he's getting at. But he doesn't just talk about our desires here. He doesn't just say to seek that. He's also saying to think. And your translation probably has set your mind on the things above. A better translation here, that that idea is okay, but it's much fuller than that. He's really not worried about what you think as much as how you think. right? So he's not saying, desire what's above, desire God's glory, desire the right hand of God and the judgment and the goodness and everything that will come from that, and then just think about it. That's not what his point is. He's saying, think the way God wants you to think. It's the way we think that is more important to God 
than what we think. And this is why by just simply doing a rule like, let's say, memorizing Scripture or even reading Scripture, we will never achieve godliness. Because until we approach our hearts with it, it's not going to change us. He wants us to think in a Christ-like manner. He wants us to believe what God believes or what God says is true. He wants us to understand the world the way God understands the world. He wants us to consider ourselves the way God considers us. In other words, as it says in Romans 12 verse 3, to think in accordance with sound judgment. And we have the wonderful privilege today of having the Word of God which explains all these things to us. It teaches us about the world we live in. It teaches us about what God says. And we are to think and believe it and live accordingly. Certainly God wants us to memorize Scripture, but the command is not just to do that, but to let the Bible change how we think. Where false religion deals with the externals, God calls us to deal with the internals. He wants to wants us to walk in the desires of the Spirit within us. He wants us to think according to the Spirit that has you know through whom we have the mind of Christ. He wants us to be transformed and he has placed the Spirit of Christ in us to mediate Christ to us so that we are conformed to his image. Therefore, we can stop dealing with worthless, empty commands and instead focus on where the problem really is, on our corrupted feelings, on our corrupted desires, on the affections that we have for the things of the world. We can focus on our shallow thinking, our thoughtless religion and our godless beliefs. Transform those and you'll live like you were raised with Christ. This is the simplicity of the Christian life. Don't worry about the world and its rules. Don't worry about rules at all. What will glorify God? Desire that. How does God think? Think that. It's simple. You can put all the rules aside. You can put all those difficulties and the interpretation of laws and rules and different circumstances and all. Put all that aside and just ask the question, what glorifies God in this moment? Desire that. Think like that. And you will be living as those who have been raised with Christ. We should seek to live according to the life of Christ within us, not according to the world outside us. And that means seeking his will, seeking his glory, thinking about how to please him and believing what the word, his word says. So Paul wants us again to consider these four realities. The reality of having died to the world, the difficulty of living in the world, the futility of living like the world, and the simplicity of living in Christ. When we were saved, we died to the world and to its standards. We died to its way of thinking, its form of religion. But it is still difficult to live in this world, isn't it? Because the world's standards continue to press upon us and they inform us. But it's also futile to live according to the world's standards and religious ideas because they assume the problem is out there and not inside. The simplicity of living in Christ is to seek the exposure of God's character and to think according to his revealed word. The problem for us is that we're like the monkey. Right at the beginning. We're saved and we're free to go if we would just let go to the, of the world's ways with the thoughts that they will help us become better people. Those rules won't help us become godly. We need to let them go and f- be free. 
We need Christ in us to be changed. We need to let the desires of God that he's implanted within us drive us to, to do what is pleasing to him. We need to think the thoughts of the Spirit of Christ within us, which are revealed to us and clarified for us in Scripture. And we need to stop pursuing worthless religious ideals and live according to who God has called us to be and is causing us to be. Is this what you desire? I want you to ask yourself this question this morning because our desires really tell us something significant about us. It could be that you've been bored by this whole sermon this morning. There was a man one time who asked a preacher, he said, you know, because he didn't feel the burden of his sin, and he said to the preacher, you know, you say that, uns- you f- you say that unsaved people feel this burden of sin, the weight of sin. I feel nothing. How heavy is this sin? Is it 10 pounds? Is it 80 pounds? And the preacher said to him, well, if you took a 400 kilogram weight and you put it on a corpse, would the weight would the corpse feel the load? And the youth said, of course not, it would feel nothing because it's dead. So the problem is us, is if we don't feel these desires, then it's probably because we're like that corpse and there is no life within us. If this describes you this morning, I invite you to repent. Your deadness gives away the fact that your religion is indeed a self-made religion. It is a religion that requires that you meet some external circumstances, some sort of condition so that you look religion, but inside you're dead. You can't avoid it. If you are saved this morning, I invite you to consider the way you live your life. Do you focus on external standards? Are you concerned about rules and regulations and doing things to to look good? Are you focused on the desires of God? on the glory of God? Are you motivated by the glory of God and believing what he says in his word? Because if that's the case, then Paul is saying, if you were raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Don't be the monkey who gets caught because he can't let go of the world's idea of religion. Live like you were raised with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we owe you some debt we can never, ever pay, Lord God. The temptation is for us to do things to repay it. But we can't. You don't want us to. Instead, Lord, you want us to live a different life. You want us to live as creatures who are changed by what you have done for us, who are motivated by a desire for your glory, who think according to your word. Lord, the world is subtle, and we are so easily ensnared. Help us to grow in discernment, we pray. May it be, Lord God, that that we would live the kind of life that pleases you, that we would live for your glory, that we would put aside rules and just think on the simplicity of what brings you glory in this situation. How do I honor you in this circumstance? How is your character exhibited here in my life? and then to change our thinking accordingly. Give us wisdom for this, we pray. And Father, as we share a meal together now, Lord, would you unite our hearts together as a body? Would you give to us a joy around this table because of the fellowship we have with you 
and with one another, all because of what you have done for us in Christ. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.